All right, intro. Intro. That's not the new intro music. <laughs> This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Flurry, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of E.T. Banter. Banter, banter. I am Rob Minot. Today, joining me, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Hey there. And Mr. Steve Barkley. That would be me. Me, 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 me. Um, hey, how you guys doing? Not too bad. How are you doing? Good. You did, did, I, can you hear that? Can you hear that lovely new intro music? No, that, that was fantastic, man. Uh, yeah, we yeah. we cut a new intro this week. Ryan is overwhelmed with emotion. He is, you can tell. <laughs> yeah, look at him. He is. He's good job, weeping, Rob. Well done. Weeping openly at the beauty <laughs> of this new opening. So we'll just give him a minute to compose himself. <laughs> it was a good pick. Thanks. I took a listen to it. Yeah. Thank you, bensound.com. Well yes. Uh, wow. So very exciting show today. Yes, this is a guest I've been trying to get on for a year. And it's finally come to fruition. Well, tell people who we are talking to today. Today we are talking with Daniel Kish from World Access for the Blind. The Daniel Kish? The Daniel Kish. The Mr. Echo Location himself. Holy Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, this is this is really fascinating stuff. Um, for yeah, and you know what? I'm not even gonna, I'm not even going to talk about it. We won't spoil it. That yeah, we're insightful. Yeah, we're not we're not even going to record it. We're just going to skip right to that's that. right. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Um, what uh, what's what's new and exciting with you guys this week? Anything? Anything not me. To talk about? Nope. Oh gosh. Uh... I should have some Sunu bands showing up soon. Sunu. Sunu. Yeah. I saw that you have picked those up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. See, look at that podcast opening doors. Yeah. There you go. Do you want to tell people a little bit about what Sunu is? Uh, let's, uh, no. we, we did a whole show on it. Right? We did. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. If yeah, you just, want to know what Sunu is, just go back and look at the Sunu show. But, uh. Yeah, soon will be available through Canadian Assistive Technology. Let's not take any of the wind out of Dan Kish's <laughs> sails because Dan is going to show us how to do all this without a Sunu band. Absolutely. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, if there's no business, I think we should get right to Daniel because uh, I have a feeling that this is going to go long. Absolutely. Let's get him on. Good morning, Daniel. Hello, this is Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. So Daniel, we actually met years and years ago at a uh, vision teachers conference in uh, Kelowna that you came up for. That would be yes, somewhere around October two thousand seven, I think. Yeah, I was that trying to, a while ago. I was trying yeah. to nail down when that was. 
I don't know if you made it to the uh, the after party. Ryan and I had a big uh, uh, like a townhouse, and the band after the dance came over to our place. <laughs> That's <and> right. <laughs> everybody kept passing the guitar around. Did Did you make it to that? No. No. Um, I don't recall that. No. Oh, okay. You You missed You missed a good party. I I may have had to be <laughs> off somewhere. That's uh, entirely possible too. He actually had to be responsible and, and be somewhere. <laughs> That's remotely possible. <laughs> that was that was a fun conference. <laughs> it was good. It was a good conference. Uh, well, thanks again for uh, for joining us. Um, you know, let's launch right into it and let's get right into talking a little bit about echolocation for those people who may be listening who aren't familiar with uh, what it is. It's really a way of seeing with sound. Um, uh, the short version is that you can use reflected sound much the way you can use reflected light to gain an awareness of your surroundings. And uh, if you're uh, proficient at it, you can actually image those surroundings. So um, the latest research shows that those who are proficient, those who use it as a principal means of, um, of navigation, uh, are actually using the visual brain to um, construct the images. So we, the term echolocation is a very generic term, um, and it basically means any use of any kind of reflected sound, which really could mean anything. So we've developed the term flash sonar to differentiate the type of echolocation that we use and teach, which is a, a particular form of active sonar, which we feel um, uh, allows the user to construct much clearer, sharper images of their surroundings and at greater distances. So give us an idea of, of how, how you started uh, developing this and, and just where it, where it all started for you personally. Well, that I, I sort of have to um, interpolate because it really started before conscious memory for me. Um, I lost my first eye at seven months of age and my second at 13 months of age from retinoblastoma, which is a retinal cancer. The eyes were removed. And um, by all reports, I began clicking um, on my own and became aware of my surroundings at around 15 to 18 months. Um, so um, my earliest memories are are around two, two and a half, um, when I, it's the story I tell, when I basically escaped at midnight out of my bedroom window and started wandering <laughs> the neighborhood. Oh, no. um, and I remember, I remember clicking, and I remember, you know, listening to things and registering things and, 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 and exploring things um, uh, when no one was there to, to bother me. Um, I think that resulted in large part from the kind of respect and freedom that my parents gave me at that time. They really didn't see blindness as a big deal. They certainly didn't see it as restrictive or hampering or inhibitive. They, they just um, saw it, I guess, as a, <laughs> as a condition that they really didn't know very much about. Um, and they really didn't trust the experts, quote unquote, to know much about it either. Um, so uh, they kind of used me as their teacher. And I think they started with first principles that I would grow up um, to 
well, to enjoy the same freedoms and responsibilities as others as an equal citizen. And to do that, uh, you start now. You, you don't, you don't, you start your journey from where you are. You don't start your journey from someplace far in the future. So um, I think that that expectation uh, and that valuing of my freedom is, is really what uh, catalyzed the development of a skill like this in, in my case. So it so it sounds like it was it was almost it was almost just a, a natural thing to do. Well, I th I think look everyone's different, so I, I I can't really speak for everyone, but I do think that one of the fundamental principles of the human brain uh, is the desire to understand our world and understand our relationship to our world, and right. I think our brain works very hard to do that. Um, it, it can do that in many different ways, uh, many, many different ways. Um, uh, but I think that is quite fundamental to the human brain and to human consciousness and perhaps to any, any brain. Um, so I think that, uh, yes, I think that that, that, that is natural and, and to understand your environment, you apply perception, you apply awareness, you apply your senses. Um, and that's what I did. And I think, now, look, I mean, there, there may be, uh, as I say, different people are different, and different people have different talents for different things. So I may have had a talent for this. I may have had a certain, you know, propensity to understand space and a certain propensity to kind of use an almost um, language model to, to develop the idea that I was essentially having conversations with my environment. I mean, if I, mm -hmm. if I click my tongue and I click it a certain way, the environment most certainly answers back um, with quite a lot of information. So as a child, um, the walls speak and trees talk and fences say something and bushes and, and, and all the rest. So um, yes, it did come quite naturally. I, a big part of our training <clears throat> is, of course, about skills development, but that's probably not even the biggest part of our training. The biggest part of our training is helping students and their families, if their families are involved, to put in place conditions that allow these kinds of skills to grow. And right. that, I think, is the biggest piece of the process. And that was in place for me. But what was in place for me were the conditions whereby these skills were able to grow. And then, of course, I perhaps had some talent to grow them. But they, they wouldn't have developed as they have without the conditions. So what exactly do we know about... Uh you know, echolocation in and of itself in terms of the, the history of it, like ha have, 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 <laughs> has it been used before? Um, like wh where, how far can we trace back to, to other people sort of using well, this? Well, we certainly aren't the first to use it. And my claim to fame is, is by no means that I was the first to use it. Right. Um, uh, the documentation dates back the first recorded documentation is 1749. It's a, it's a famous case 
of a, of a, a philosopher documenting a friend of his who was blind, who appeared to be able to get about um, using some kind of a sense. And the term echolocation uh, in and of itself wasn't actually applied until the 1940s, and it was applied by Donald Griffin, who studied bats. Um, for many, many years, in fact, all the way up to the present, echolocation in humans is studied largely by natural scientists and experimental psychologists. These days, it's often studied by visual psychologists, people who specialize in vision. Um, uh, and documentation of its use um, kind of spans history for, for the last 300 years. Um, my claim to fame, if there is any, is not so much about, um, about the fact that I use it or how I use it. It has a lot more to do with, with how we teach it and the fact that, uh, that we can convey or impart this skill to others. We can help others develop a, a, a proficiency reliably um, in the use and application of the skill. Okay, so well, let's talk a little bit about that then. In your experience teaching it to other people, how how long does it does it take to sort of develop as a skill? And, you and usually you usually see gains immediately um, within minutes. I mean, very often um, we get our our first aha experiences in the first five minutes of training, um, and people. Uh, often say that they, they, they didn't expect that, um, that they would begin to develop a proficiency so quickly. Um, now, that's a little bit of a pie-in-the-sky answer because, A, it does vary from person to person, and B, there's a whole load of refinement that, that goes into <laughs> learning to see. I mean, if you learn to see with your eyes, you spend years and years and years doing that. The visual right. system spends about the first 20 years developing. So it's not something that we can or should expect to happen overnight, but it is actually quite remarkable how quickly it does happen. So normally when we do a, a workshop, because we tend to travel to do these workshops, we tend to, to our, our program tends to be primarily outreach, although students do come to us occasionally. But we have to make a very quick, very decisive impact very quickly. So it's very intensive work, and it usually takes two to three days um, with a student. And by the end of those two to three days, uh, they have developed a very high level of what I will call scaffolded proficiency, meaning that um, we do not handhold them through the process. We don't tend to spoon feed information. Our paradigm of instruction is very different from the traditional approach uh, to instruction. But of course, we are there to help them ask the right questions about their environment, to help them um, uh, cue in on uh, information in a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when that is withdrawn, they must apply this. They must practice. It's a bit like the closest model would be like learning a new language. And the best way to learn a language is immersion. It's not through a textbook. It's not necessarily through someone teaching you the language. It's 
that can provide a, a, a foundation or scaffolding, but you've got to actually get in there and speak and interact in that language. And if you do not, you will lose the skill. Right. Um, and so a big part of our paradigm is uh, helping students to be comfortable traveling uh, unguided and uh, without a lot of oversight and be able to get out there and apply the skill because one of the founding fundamental principles of learning is need. You have to need to learn something. That's the strongest um, springboard for the learning process. If you need to do it, you'll learn to do it. And if you don't really need to, then it's harder. Daniel, you mentioned that there was uh, there was some research going on into this. What sort of what sort of research is is currently underway about about this? Is it just determining uh, more about the brain function? Or there's a fair bit of research that's ongoing, and our work has seems to have spearheaded a lot of interest in various areas. So there's there's psychophysical research. What can humans actually accomplish? What can they actually do? What can they actually hear? And um, uh, there's still ongoing research into, you know, if you click at stuff, what can you perceive? And, and what, are the, what, what are the levels of minutiae that you can perceive? And et cetera, et cetera. I consider that to be fairly boring research. Um, uh, some of the interesting research that's going uh, on now, uh, a lot of it's coming out of Durham University, um, and we consult on this research, is... Uh, about how how well can humans hear a signal buried in noise? So signal to noise ratio, basically. Um, so echoes are almost always by nature buried in noise. There, and and many critiques of echolocation um, would say that it doesn't work well in noise, which is not true. And so the question is: we know it's not true. But how not true is that? How buried can a signal be in noise to be able to hear it? And for people who are proficient in echolocation, uh, the numbers are extremely high. You're talking down to, you know, negative 40 dB plus or minus. We've gotten down lower than negative 50 dB, hmm. which is extreme. It's, it's outrageous that, that humans can learn to um, um, unearth uh, a signal from from that amount of noise, so that's some interesting research going on there. Um, there's also some research going on into the mechanics: what types of clicks produce the best results, and what types of clicks do human echolocators tend to use? So, if we look at uh, the clicks that people tend to use, who we know are proficient, that gives us an insight into. Uh, the, the types of clicks that seem to be effective. And in fact, when you study those, you find that they are, they're quite similar in nature. They tend to be brief in duration. They tend to be very sharp in their onset. Um, and they, they have signal characteristics that would make them very bright sounding, very clear sounding. And that's pretty much the case for, 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 for all people who use it proficiently. Um, some of the most interesting research, I think, is... Um, in the areas of brain research, um, as you say. So there's a lot of research in, in uh, functional um, MRI, which looks at the parts of the brain that are involved in 
processing and constructing the signal to produce or construct an image. And of course, it's the visual brain that's involved. But how is it involved? I mean, one of the things that we know is that if you present different, we'll call them echo tasks, um, so shape discrimination, feature discrimination, uh, movement, is the object moving or not, uh, location, where is the object, et cetera, et cetera, which we use virtual um, uh, virtual recordings to, to do. So virtual recordings are played back in the scanner and you listen to these and you make a response. <clears throat> um, those areas of the brain, if you were sighted, that would um, be processing these different kinds of tasks are the same areas that process these, these echo tasks. Again, for those who are proficient. So um, that's one thing that we found with MRI scanning, but now there's interest in expanding uh, brain studies into um, MEG scans or EEG scans. Um, which uh, are also brain scans, but they look at the brain in a different way and can potentially provide us with different information because they just use a different uh, process to, uh, to register how the brain does what it does. So I'm going to throw this out there, Daniel, and ask you, what's been the most difficult location, city, or experience you've had using echolocation and trying to distinguish kind of what's around you. Hawat train station in Calcutta, <laughs> India. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so <laughs> in Hawat train station, uh, first of all, it's, it's, it's utterly packed with people. It's hard for us to even imagine how many people could be squeezed into an area. Um, and it is chaos. And, and uh, because it was built forever ago, it has no air conditioning or ventilation. So they have these gas-driven fans on every support oh, column in the place. Now, those gas-driven fans, each of them sound a bit like a, you know, a revved-up lawnmower kind of thing. <laughs> oh, my God. So the, no the noise levels are incredibly extreme. Um, and so you would, you would need, actually, a very, very strong signal, probably not humanly producible. We have been <laughs> experimenting with other forms of signals. Um, that people can use if they are not able or not willing to use a tongue click. And we have found signals that could probably penetrate that kind of environment. I haven't been back there since 2007. Hmm. Um, but yes, that's probably the hardest. That, that was actually my next question was uh, if you had experimented with artificial signals and um, you know what, uh, what your experience has been using <coughs> them versus uh, using the own the the clicks that you generate. You know, it's. I guess you can always enhance. I mean, we can get better vision, better eyesight with technology. We can get better touch with technology, uh, or extend our reach with technology. Um, uh, one could imagine using technology to mm -hmm. optimize a signal. Um, our, our code name for one of our first prototypes was OES, Optimized Echo Signal, um, later uh, renamed the IntelliClicker, um, and now it's called the Sound Flash. But, you know, for all the technology that, that then the R&D that we've poured into this, um, we actually found a, a certain type of, of uh, toy castanet that, that works very, very well. 
that you can purchase for three bucks. Mm. And um, many children uh, use it and like it and find it much easier than developing a tongue click. Um, some adults, especially adults with hearing impairments, have found them very useful. Mm -hmm. um, uh, not all castanets are created equally, so we actually had to do some, some canvassing of the best ones. Um, you, and, you to, uh, and, and the results are remarkable, quite frankly. Um, so it's a fairly recent development in our approach, uh, but we have investigated the use of hand clickers and right. uh, other types of signals that people can use. And this seems to be it for now. Um, and it's quite effective. Um, I, I always run out of them when I bring them <laughs> in my travels. Um, let's let's sort of uh, divert for a minute and talk to us a little bit about uh, your organization itself, uh, World Access for the Blind. Uh, what do you what do you, when was it formed and uh, what do you guys do there? It is a nonprofit charity registered in the U.S. Um, it was formed in two thousand one, and uh, its mandate, if you will, is to facilitate the freedom and self-directed achievement of people with all forms of blindness and to raise public awareness about the real strengths and challenges of blind people. And uh, the focus, I mean, that, that can take many, many, many different forms and will take many, many, di many different forms as the organization continues to develop. But the focus has been about freedom of movement and freedom of personal choice through movement. Um, and so our focus has been uh, upon advancing um, the movement and navigational capacities of blind individuals by uh, really quite reshaping the instructional process behind that and by um, developing a skill set that is more conducive to freedom of movement and freedom of choice through movement. My, my thing about freedom of movement is, is this. Um, I'll tell a story about this. I was sitting in an audience and I was appointed to speak on, in, 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 a, in, a, in a series of, of presentations and they had to do with basically world impact. And <clears throat> so you had these people who were top professionals or scientists in their area and each did a presentation on, on some impact they were making on the world. And it was usually about, you know, hunger, hunger and starvation, how to address starvation, how to address lack of water, how to address violence to children, um, how to address chronic disease. It was things like this, which are all very, very, very compelling issues. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sitting in the audience thinking, okay, why am I here really? What am I, what am I here to talk about? And, um, as I reflected upon that and completely rewriting the presentation that I had planned to do in my head, um, it became very clear to me that freedom, <laughs> freedom of movement and freedom of personal choice and freedom to, to, to go and do what you want to do is really quite fundamental to everything. Right. Uh, it is so fundamental to everything that we don't tend to think about it and, and we don't, and we tend to take it quite for granted. And so we don't tend to think about people who for any number of reasons and blindness is only one reason 
do not have that. They, they simply do not have freedom of movement and, and, and they do not have freedom of choice over their interaction with their environment, over their relationship with their world. So that to me is, is, is really quite critical to human life, to human life and living. So, hmm, this and this might be a bit of a loaded question, but, you know, because, you know, on the podcast, we talk a lot about technology. With all the developments in technology, and especially around uh, mobility aids, for example, uh, right now, you know, there's there's a real big push into wearables, and there's there's all kinds of, like, um, smart glasses and, and apps for, for smartphones to help with mobility. Do you feel like... Are you concerned maybe that people are starting to rely on technology too much? Um, because it, it seems to be very different from what, what you guys are doing um, in terms of teaching people how to, um, you know, navigate their environment and their world organically and naturally. Um, do, does the, sort of the push of, of technology kind of concern you about that? I think it concerns all of us. I mean, I think it's a social concern. Um, I mean, we're beginning to study how reliance on GPS affects the growth of the hippocampus in the human brain, or the, I should say, uh, the regression of the uh, hippocampus in the human brain. Um, uh, how uh, the overuse of, of looking at the pretty lights um, affects your eyes and affects brain development. How kids are becoming digitally addicted, how they're literally becoming dopamine addicted mm -hmm. so it's a yeah it's it's a problem it's a problem and it's going to have very very wide repercussions before we finally get a handle on what it is and what it's doing to us all um i think uh, i think we have to find a middle path somewhere um all of us um blind sighted whatever um there has to be a middle path somewhere uh we're developing wearables okay this 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 idea of wearables well a lot of the countries we teach in it's going to be a long time before wearables become commonplace right. there right so it's all very well and good to develop um the best widget and gadget to do a particular thing but when you're in you know a village in india or or thailand or god knows where um it's just not going to happen right. there just isn't ever going to be the infrastructure to get the device to individuals, let alone maintain the device uh, for individuals. So um, I, I think we have to be, I think we have to look broadly at options. Um, the, the, the current cane that I use and the cane that I generally recommend is a composite of Kevlar and graphite and carbon fiber. And it seems to have the best conductivity and it's just the best cane that we have tried in, in our many, many travels and work with people in, in, in 40 countries. Um, <clears throat> but you know what? Bamboo actually works really well. So um, I, I just think we have to be reasonable when it comes to technology and, and strike a middle ground somewhere. Right. So do you see a time when maybe, you know, sort of you know, echolocation and technology can kind of work together to, to develop sort of a perfect solution? 
well, there will be no perfect solution. And the answer is um, it's inevitable. Um, I mean, technology and eyesight are. I mean, technology is here to stay, and you know, for as long as humans are, are around. Technology in one form or another. So technology is just now an aspect of human evolution. True that. And technically, I mean, you're already using technology in what you're doing. You know, the, the castanet may not be high technology, but it's still, it's still a technology that True. you're using uh, as part of echolocation. In a perfect world, then, uh, do you see echolocation as something that should be being taught uh, at, a, at a very early age as something in uh, a visually impaired child's toolbox to be able to use to navigate the world? We use the term toolbox. I tend to use the term perceptual profile. Um, basically, I, I, I just think of it as a naturally emerging ability. I don't, I, I, so I guess to, to reflect on that question, I might ask, um, what is the ideal age to learn to see? And if I ask that question, most people tend to say, well, I mean, we start learning to see when we're born. You know, you don't cover up a newborn's eyes and say, you know, we got to teach this to you. We have to teach this to you in a, in a didactic, regimented way because, I mean, you're, you're only newborn and you, you, you can't possibly use your vision effectively or responsible at this age. So let's just teach you over the course of time in a very specific way how to do this. And then when you're maybe, I don't know, six or eight years old, um, then we'll just kind of let you do it. Um, that's just not how it's done. Um, one of the principles of our approach is freedom first. Freedom comes first. Freedom drives development. Freedom drives learning. So if I could start with newborns, I would start with newborns and I would have uh, I would have perceptual development training. I would have a cane in their hand. I would have um, a process in place for newborns to begin benefiting from right away. Mm -hmm. Now, in preparing for the, for today's episode, I, I sort of went back and, and I watched I watched your TED talk, which I thought was was amazing. Um, I also, you know, watched a lot of the the media pieces um, that were that have been done on you in, in, over the years. Um, and what struck me was was a lot of those were kind of painted, painted echolocation as this sort of superhuman, amazing ability. And, and it was, and it seems to me that, that your sort of main message is that this is something that we, that everybody has. It's just a, a natural ability and it's just a matter of, of, you know, learning how to use it. And, and it sounds like, you know, if left to their own devices, most most visually impaired kids would probably would probably learn to use it on their own if they weren't sort of um, you know put into other uh, training regiments like you know O and M and stuff. So do you do you find does it ever frustrate you that message that that this is something you know superhuman? Again, it comes back to a middle ground, uh, and it comes back to very strategic use of a, I'll call it a device, which has many functions and can be both highly beneficial and highly toxic. 
that is the media. Right. Um, and we have learned through many successes and mistakes. Um, well, we are, I should say we are learning through many successes and mistakes um, how to work with the media. So there have been times when, uh, when messages have been put out there that, that we really wouldn't have endorsed. Um, and so we have grown more and more careful and cautious about that, more and more discriminating and discerning uh, about the media channels through which we operate. Um, <clears throat> the, the other side to that is that uh, human echolocation has become a relatively hot topic, whereas it wasn't even heard of 20 years ago. So the media has had a place in that. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you do sometimes have to force um, an issue into human consciousness. And, you know, they sometimes don't put a, a traffic light into an intersection until so many people have died mm -hmm. there. People have to die before, um, before people take action. So sometimes you have to be extreme before people kind of wake up and look at an issue and, and make a determination about how that issue may ha be handled differently. So we do walk that line. I mean, we've got one of our instructors set a, a Guinness World Record by you know, totally blind, riding a bicycle through an obstacle course on a stage in front of thousands of Italians. And, and we show that. Um, but our message really is, yes, a lot of the stuff that is shown and that we do show is, quote unquote, extraordinary. Um, but it's not about the extraordinary for us. It's really about the ordinary. It's really about people being able to live their lives um, in a day-to-day -day fashion more comfortably, more confidently, um, more competently, and with, and I keep coming back to this word, freedom. Right. Yeah, I, I think any time that you're interacting with the press, you, you're standing a, a good chance of uh, having them deliver the wrong message if you don't coach them really carefully. Um, I, I had a, a good example of that when uh, Mike May first came up to, uh, to start demonstrating uh, GPS technology. And we got, uh, we got a reporter. I don't remember where the reporter was from, but they came and they were, they were really thrilled. They talked to Mike for a long time and then they went back and they wrote an article called uh, something along the lines of uh, technology to spell the end of guide dogs. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Talk, that's not a loaded title. No, no. And Mike, Mike was pretty unhappy with the, with the uh, headline too. Who now, who now uses a dog. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, I want to ask Daniel this question and, you know, you feel free to share it or not. It's entirely up to you, but using echolocation, have you had any mishaps that you're willing to share with us? I've had mishaps as a person. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't, I can't, I can't attribute it to, to echolocation. Um, I, you know, sighted people have mishaps, and it's not necessarily because they see; it's because of what they didn't see, uh, I suppose. Um, so I've had plenty of those. I, I think, <clears throat> I think a way to look at this really is. And it does come back to freedom. So I, I have the freedom to have mishaps if I want. <laughs> um, I think 
and that freedom is denied many blind people. <laughs> you know, mishaps aren't allowed if you're blind, right? Because hmm. um, it makes everyone so uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, I just, I, I don't buy into that really. Um, I, I, our method does put people out there. It enables people to make the choice to do things uh, that they may not have thought they could do and to really push that envelope. And it, um, for example, it allows people to go into any environment, familiar or unfamiliar, and be able to travel around that environment and essentially teach themselves that environment if that's what they want to do. That's, a, that's, that's sort of a, a common part of our training is we're in a park or something. We're in some place you've never been to before. Let's go figure it out. Okay. So <clears throat> you have the skills. You've got your cane. You're listening. You're clicking or whatever you're doing. And you're, you're thinking or you're considering or you're judging. And, um, of course, you, you, you do your best not to have a mishap. And most of the time it doesn't happen. Um, Sometimes it does happen. I mean, I've, I've been in no less than six car accidents, and I wasn't driving. <laughs> <laughs> so mishaps are just a part of life, of, of life and living. Yeah. Um, now, and you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, um, but obviously echolocation is something that, that is a bit of a hot topic right now. So are there, are there other organizations like yours that are beginning to form? Uh, do you know anybody else um, around the world that's, that's, that's um, starting to use it and teach it like you are? Um, there is, well, uh, there are several answers to that question. There, there is mounting interest in developing um, either branches of World Access for the Blind or um, spin-offs from World Access for the Blind. In fact, there's one in Canada called Blind Beginnings. Mm -hmm. um, and that was inspired by uh, our work with Sean Marcellet yep. um, back in 2006, 2007. And um, she basically uh, cut and pasted a lot of our philosophy into her organization. We had a long, long talk about its development um, before it was developed. And then we go out and we do workshops um, with them and for them on a regular basis. Um, there's another one in Ger Germany called uh, Anders Sehen, another way of seeing. Uh, same thing, basically, same, same process. Uh, recently, I delivered a keynote for a, a world conference at the UN on a barrier-free world. Um, and there is now a very great interest and lots of movement toward developing a branch of World Access for the Blind in Austria and possibly relocating its core to Austria in the form of an academy there. Uh, interest in developing it in Norway. Uh, we already have a sister company in, um, or sister organization in Australia. So that's happening. Um, there are... <laughs> organizations uh, who have taken a workshop or true and have tried or are trying trying to kind of um, introduce echolocation into their region. And some of them have been fairly successful because the instructors have been very uh, receptive 
to our approach and receptive to the way we, we teach it. It's not just that it's taught, it's, it has it in large part to do with the way it's taught. So there is a paradigm behind its development that is most conducive. If you think of it as a skill, uh, you're likely to be less successful. If you think of it as an ability that derives from how we perceive our environment, you're likely to be, to be more effective. So tell us, if anyone out there is interested in World Access for the Blind, where can they find you guys? Well, worldaccessfortheblind.org or visioneers.org. Visioneers is, is, a, um, is uh, a branch of World Access for the Blind that deals specifically with uh, our services and how we service people. So either worldaccessfortheblind.org or visioneers.org. Anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't hit on? It's not necessarily about um, refining or evolving the system that is in place to teach blind people. I, I think that some very fundamental changes either need to be made to that system or a new system needs to put in place. I don't think, I think we're beyond the point where you can just try and retrofit the existing system. I think uh, it has shown itself to be, uh, in many ways, not particularly successful. And I think one of the reasons for that has to do with the fact that it, it remains very sight-based. It remains very based in the idea that blind people function best when they have sight to rely on, someone's sight or some sight of their own remaining. Right. And we are talking about eyesight. And so there's a lot of emphasis on, on sighted guide, on sighted assistance, on sighted orientation, on sighted perspectives, on teaching blind people what we see, on environmental narration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying that blind people don't benefit from that um, in its time and place. But I think that the emphasis needs to shift very dramatically uh, from a sight emphasis to a perceptual emphasis. And it, that has a lot, that's much broader. And mm -hmm. it has a lot to do with how the human brain really works. The human brain as an organism is not sight-based. Sight is an aspect of the human brain happens to be a large aspect of the human brain, but I would argue that it's not about sight, it's about vision. It's about how we image our surroundings. And we use an entire perceptual system to do that, not just our eyes. So I think we need to, to shift our thinking very dramatically from sightism to visualism or perceptualism. Uh, and if and when we can do that, then we'll be much more effective uh, in facilitating the self-directed achievement and freedom of blind individuals. Yeah, and I mean, considering that, that I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the way that, that blind people are, are taught, I mean, I, you know, has that changed since like the 1800s? Like, I mean... <laughs> well, it's changed so since the 1800s, but it hasn't really changed very much arguably, and I certainly would argue this, since, say, the 1950s. And look, I, I, I don't begrudge what the people of the 1950s put in place. Uh, they, there, there wasn't 
there weren't certain things in place, someone put them in place, and then they were in place, and it was better than nothing, right? So, sure. um, and it was quite effective and quite sufficient for a lot of people at that time. But times have changed, blind people have changed, society has changed, technology has changed, the environment has changed, and science has changed. That's right. And one of the things that I've noticed, um, particularly uh, telling about the blindness field, is it does not tend to embrace uh, a cross-disciplinary approach to looking at the matter. So it really hasn't involved modern science in its development. So consequently, many of the techniques that we still teach, many of the ways we still teach them, uh, come to us really quite directly from from the 1950s and that needs to change uh, a very great deal because I just don't see them being effective. Sure well I mean and we, you know we're still learning so much about the brain and the, and the way that it processes information and just how elastic it is. Things we did not know 50 years ago. That's right. That's right. So I guess what needs to happen is that you know we need to we need to shift the focus to you know, into agreement with what we are learning about the brain. I mean, well, I've recently published a textbook, um, and it's called Echolocation and Flash Sonar. It's available from APH. Um, and of course, it does challenge quite directly um, the existing paradigm and, and many of the traditional approaches. Um, and it, 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 a third of the textbook basically is dedicated to brain science, brain development. Um, the perceptual system, and how to activate that, how to activate this neuroplasticity that you just made reference to. Um, our model really has much to do with, uh, say, stroke recovery or uh, recovery from traumatic brain injury, where there are therapeutic approaches, there are paradigms that actually do activate this neural uh, plasticity. And to me, blindness is just another such condition that we learn to adapt to and we learn to adapt to that condition by activating this neuroplasticity right. and if if you can't do that then you're um you're just kind of putting a band-aid really on a situation and you're kind of treating it like um you know a, a really bad situation that you that you're trying to make the best out of um I, I look at it from a much more of a, of a gain adaptation perspective. What can we gain from our environment? How do we gain an effective, productive, constructive relationship with our environment? We do it through adapting to whatever condition we're in, whatever situation we're in. There's no difference really uh, among humans, we all have to adapt. While well, your brain is getting plasticized, I think Rob's has just been burned out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It snapped back. Oh, good. It was stretching and stretching and then it just snapped. <laughs> Mind blown. No, it is it is so true, and I really see this as as it it's kind of a you know, it's kind of a counterpoint not an argument, but it's, it, it is very much shifting away from the idea of technology and it, and it, it is so important. It's, it's cause it's, it's what we base everything on. And I think that 
as technology gets shinier and better, we we're we're drifting away from from that. Well, since we're since we're on that subject, I mean, I think maybe one of the criteria for an effective tech technological solution would be does it facilitate adaptation or does it hamper adaptation? Mm-hmm. And that's the question that I ask many people who work with blind people. Okay, so um, so the the tendency is to want to support, it's to want to help, it's to want to assist, it's to want to direct or instruct or whatever. Um, and sometimes that's needed. But the question I always ask myself as an instructor and the question I encourage people to ask is, well, there are a couple. One, how much freedom do you want to have? How much freedom do you, do you want your child to have or your student to have? And the next question following is, is the support that you're about to provide, does the support that you're about to provide facilitate this person's freedom, short and long-term, or inhibit this person's freedom, short and long-term. And so, you know, if we substitute adaptation, it's really kind of the same thing. Um, Does this support facilitate adaptation to a person's condition, or does it inhibit adaptation to a person's condition? And I think that the same can be applied to technology. Well, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now without technology. And many people will benefit, one would like to think, from this conversation. So one can argue that it facilitates adaptation. Um, But where does technology begin to inhibit adaptation? And I think in many ways it is, and it has, and it will. And I think we have to take a really good look at that. Yeah. I just have to come to the conclusion about how much freedom I want. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Well, you know, it's it's funny. We we all used to work in an office together, and, and uh, we we used to lovingly refer to Ryan as the pinball because he he would routinely just sort of wander out of his office without his cane, and uh, he would just navigate the world by just bumping into stuff, and uh, that was his that was his that was his method, and it worked it worked great for him. And uh, so, I mean, I don't know. He's, uh, he's kind of like an echolocation <laughs> guru without actually using the echolocation. He's, like he's like a body check, <laughs> body check location. That's I, very, very uh, kinesthetic. Yeah, I, I, I can also say that his method was at times hysterical. <laughs> my, 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 favorite, my favorite thing was when he would walk to my office and miss my door by a couple of feet and, and he'd walk into the window. And then every time he did it, he'd he'd hit it, and then like a bird that had just flown into glass, he'd go caw, <laughs> and it cracked me up every single time. <laughs> oh, wonderful! Well, listen, Daniel, we really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us today. Um, you know, this is um, I I see this as really important and fascinating stuff. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate you chasing me down and you know what hopefully you know hopefully next time you're you're up uh up here in vancouver with uh, the blind beginnings folks hopefully maybe we can come over and meet you yeah yeah that'd be nice fantastic okay thank you so much sir real good thank okay, you. you you all have a great day thanks take care. you too bye-bye take care bye oh wow that's that is so cool <clears throat> yeah so cool 
Yeah, I've, yeah. You you probably saw in the uh, in the videos that you were looking at some of the things that he's able to do with with echolocation. It's pretty uh, it's pretty cool. It it is. Well, even the bike riding. You know, like you know, one of the sessions he was up here with Blind Beginnings doing. Mm-hmm. He actually, I think, had Sean ride a bike. Yeah. Using echolocation. I don't know if she's still doing that, but you know, just the fact that she was able to get on a bike and you know pedal for you know a few feet or however sh- far she went. And being able to, you know, not hit a wall. <laughs> That's important. It is. Yeah. yeah. Key, really. Key in, in an enjoyable bike ride. Uh, yes. No walls. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and just talking about how how well the, the echo feedback works, especially in noisy environments, you know, how low it'll go. You know, he was saying like the minus 40, minus 50 decibel range. You know, that's pretty impressive. You know, you think about New York City and, and Chicago and some of these other really noisy environments. Yeah. I, I You know, it's hard for me to put that into a frame of reference because I don't really know what what that difference in, in decibel levels represents. Is that like, you know, having a train going by and right. dropping right. a pin? Or sure. is it, you know, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't have that frame of reference there, mm. but uh, um, it sounds extreme. It it sounds extreme, but really, you know, you put it in you put it in perspective into what we as humans can do every day, just normally. I mean, there's so many things that you know, just just being a normal human, and our senses that we can learn how to do, uh, that you know, without any context, is amazing. And so, you know, to me, that's sort of the core of of uh, of of what Daniel is trying to say is is kind of like. We need to move it, move away from this notion that this is incredible and wow, this guy can can navigate using echolocation and he's amazing and it's superhuman and he's like daredevil. Like we need to get away from that and and more to the notion of this is just something is that we as humans can do and it's just it's just a, a natural ability like the ability to for people with sight to be able to walk. I mean, you, you think about walking on two legs. I mean, we can't do it as babies, but you just you learn that. You learn that skill and it's, you know, so it's, it's, and it's no different than that. It's just something that we need to start developing at an early age so that, so that, uh, it's, you know, and I know he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily use the the term toolbox. I forget what, what term he used, but, but that's exactly it. It's, It's just another tool in the toolbox as a natural human ability. And I feel like, you know, maybe maybe the way that we do teach blind children, um, we sort of lose, they, they lose that natural ability because we put so much emphasis on, oh, here's your cane, here's how you navigate the world, yeah. here's what you're limited to, and, and we, don't, we don't look at that, and I think that's what needs to change. Well, it's interesting that he developed that skill on his own from you know, early, right. early childhood. Uh, you know, and you, it makes you wonder how many blind kids do that for starters mm-hmm. and and how many of them maybe start doing it and somebody says stop making that noise yeah, yeah. no exactly you know? yeah here's your cane yeah. this is the way that you navigate you tap with your cane and and that's it so i think he's absolutely right uh that you know sort of we need to rethink about uh, how we're teaching um the visually impaired children for sure and i mean we didn't get to it I, i'm and i i forgot to ask him this but you know, I was curious to know how how much easier it is to teach children the method as opposed to teaching adults. 
Oh, it's probably way easier to teach kids. I would assume. I, I think I think that's borne out in every study on education yeah, ever. Sure. If you start somebody younger, they're going to have an easier time of of learning it simply because of that that brain plasticity that right. we were talking about. Sure. Kids have very rubbery brains. They do. <laughs> but I mean, the other interesting, I, I think, part of that conversation too is technology and the way. Like I kept my in my head, I kept thinking back to something like Ira. Hmm. Right now, Ira is, you know, getting just accolades yep. heaped upon it. And, you know, I'm not, nothing against Ira. I mean, I, I do think it's a, it's an amazing service and stuff, but it really does sort of run counterpoint to this whole notion, which is, you know, if, you know, w- with Ira, if you run up against a, if you have a normal route that you're, you're using down the street and they've blocked it off for construction, well, you know, with Ira, yeah, you 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 use the the glasses and you you phone into an operator and they tell you that there's a barricade there and you have to go around it. Yeah, which is you know completely different than you know what you're using your your own abilities, your echolocation. You can actually you know perceive that that roadblock and go around it yourself. Well, and they're well, they're very they're very different, right? Y- yes and no. I think with Ira though, you know you have a live agent on the end who can actually describe to you the scene. You may just think it's blocked off, but you don't have a full image of what is actually in front of you, around you, beside you. You don't know what that is. You just know that there's something there. Ira will actually describe to you and actually tell you, if you walk four more feet, you're going to fall in a hole, right? You know, they'll actually give you the full description. So it's an add-on service. Yes, you still need to have your own M skills and, you know, be able to rely on get, getting from point A to point B. You know, it's not a replacement. But I think with echolocation, it is still going to be limiting on its own. Well, you know, and again, it, it goes down to fundamentals, right? Like, I think that I think that everybody, and I think Daniel would probably agree if he was still here, that, you know, again, technology has its place and it has right. its... Um, uses, but if we if if we rely on it too much, uh, it's a problem. Oh, absolutely. You know, yep. and uh, I don't know. I just kind of see see technology and what we're talking about here with Daniel sort of being at odds. And I, I think he's absolutely right. Is that probably the you know in a perfect world, what's what will hopefully happen is there'll be a marriage between the two. It'll be you know it, it'll be a mixture of technology and natural abilities and um you know eventually hopefully we'll get to a point where where mobility just won't be as as big of a hurdle as it has been for years and years and years well there's so much you know technology coming up you know we've been seeing some stories lately on smart paint uh, for intersections you know so you're going to have an app on your phone or some other device to actually tell you that you're at a marked intersection and keep you kind of between the lines. And, you know, one of the first things you learn with O&M is, you know, how to cross the street safely. Yeah. So it's not a replacement for your cane training or, or dog training. But again, it's it's another one of those add-ons that can only make traveling easier. Yeah, but, you know, and I think the counterpoint to that, though, would be is that, you know, again, we're talking about, a you know, a first world country. Yes, uh, yeah. and, and a highly technological yeah, right. part of that. And, you know, again, when, you know, him, him talking about, I really like this idea that he's talking about where it all comes down to freedom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you don't have a, a, uh, a service connection, if you're, if you're out of service range, 
IRA is not going to do you any good. Right. So again, you're restricted yeah. yep. in your freedom. Relying on your skills. And your, yeah. yeah, when he was talking about that, I, I kind of, I, I was trying to think of, a, of an analogy uh, that, that you could use for that. And, and the one I came up with was, okay, if, if say you had to light a fire for the rest of your life. Right. And you, you're given the option of a Bic lighter or a flint and steel. <laughs> which, which way are you going to go? Flint and steel. steel. Of yeah, course you are. Sure. Because yeah. it's going to last and last and last. Whereas yeah. as soon as that bicks out of fuel, you're mm-hmm. toast. Yep. So, you know, the, 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 the lighter is obviously the easier way to light a fire, right. yep. but it's not going to be the go-to, um, long-term. Right. Yeah. So. And that's, that's actually a really good analogy. It's exactly right. And so I think that, you know, what, what I'm taking away from this is that, you know, it, it's, it's not a good idea to to take some of this new technology and use it as a, as an all encompassing solution because it's going to limit your freedom in the long run because you're not always going to have it. Well, and like you said, you know, reliance on, on GPS products, you know, for people even who are sighted, you know, a lot of people have probably lost the ability to read a map. You know, 20 years ago, we were looking at maps and trying to problem solve and troubleshoot our way, you yeah. know, around neighborhoods and everything else. Now we're relying on GPS and look what's happening. We're driving off overpasses because Siri <laughs> told us to turn right, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. And it's, you know, it's a conversation that, that, you know, goes far beyond just, just blindness. Yeah. And, you know, it, you're right. It's, it's a human, it's a human problem. Well, it's a first world problem yeah. actually at the moment. Well, actually, you know, that's, that's another good analogy because I've noticed that w- when I, when I used to use a map, you know, you'd have to look up the street on a grid. You'd mm-hmm. have to find where that where that street was. You'd H3. have to navigate to that street. You'd have to watch your turns very carefully. Um, now, when I use GPS, you don't think twice. I, I get there. <laughs> I don't really think too much about it. No. Nope. But I also have discovered that after you know the first one or two trips, I can't necessarily find my way back there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, without sure. without going back to the GPS. GPS. Yeah. Whereas if I had done it. Probably once with a map, I would be able to go back there. Yep, no problem. Right. So yeah, yeah there true. are there are fundamental differences in the way that our you know our brains are absorbing this information when we when we rely on technology. Well, yeah. and that's a whole another you know bag of, yeah. bag of worms. It's just like yeah, the effect of technology on the brain and stuff. That's yeah. uh, a good good show topic. Yep. We'll have to get, find somebody. Yeah, find an expert in the field. So yeah, there was one go. one conversation with Daniel Kish. We're like. <laughs> Technology. <laughs> Where's my cane? We're, yeah, we're changing the podcast, everybody. It's no longer about technology. It's evil. Yeah, that's right. It's the A podcast. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Screw the T. That's right. All right. All right. Well, that's wow. We're going. We're, this is going to be a long episode, but it's but it was so good. Like so good. That was so interesting. Really. Good, good get there, Ryan. Thank you. This makes up for the Rick Hansen fiasco. <laughs> yes, I saw you post that on Twitter the other day, or last week. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah, I might have. posted something about Rick Hansen. <laughs> uh, you know, friend of the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know it, but he is. Oh, he probably does. Uh, he probably does. <laughs> Keep waiting for him to reach out and say, let me come on the show. Yeah, okay. Well, he'll be waiting a long time. I'm sure he's busy. That's what they say. It's got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, Hey, Ryan. Rob. Where can people find us? As usual, atbanter.com. They can also drop us a line if they so desire, atbanterpodcast at gmail.com. 
And with a little bit of hunting on Facebook and Twitter, you could find us there too. Also Instagram, which we almost never use. But sometimes. But occasionally. We're getting better. Hey, Steve. Hey, Rob. Hey, where can people find this place that I've heard exists called Canadian Assistive Technology? Well, so glad you asked. Canadian Assistive Technology is a pretty fancy company that does assistive technology. See, it's right there in the name. And it can be found at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H.com. And our partner organization that does all kinds of servicing of assistive technology, the really the only service center in Western Canada for a lot of it, is Chaos Technical Services. And you can find them at chaostechnicalservices.com. Or call us at Canos Tech. We can do that too. We can direct you to them. Yeah, he really needs to. It's too bad that he didn't uh, get a better. He, it's, it's it's a lot of spelling for his. Uh, that is that is a long <laughs> domain. He, he should have. Yeah, just like Chaos have. Tech. Yeah, he should have. Yeah, you see, I could have done CanadianAssistiveTechnology.com, but who wants to type that out? That's mm-hmm. a lot. And besides, as soon as you put ass in the middle of your uh, domain name, it makes everybody giggle. So there <laughs> yeah, you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, he can probably still get Chaos Tech. Maybe. I don't actually you know what he might. It he may have, have been taken. Yeah, yeah it true. may have been taken. I think I was hoping more that, and I think hmm. I think that might have been. An yeah, issue. that sounds like one that would be taken. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think. Oh that's, wait, 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 wait. What? Yeah, I wait, have a, I have Ryan. a public service announcement I'm um, I meant to make on today's show. PSA. Like us on PSA. like us on iTunes. <laughs> like us on iTunes. <laughs> like us on iTunes. That wasn't the PSA. Well, this is okay. Let me do a PSA. All right. Like us on iTunes. <laughs> Cam done. Go. All right. We've had some listeners email us and ask us if we know what's going on with Cool Blind Tech, and I reached out and spoke to Nelson Rago from Cool Blind Tech on Sunday. And I just want to let our listeners know, yes, the Cool Blind Tech is still around. They aren't doing podcasts at the moment, but they are still doing many contributions to their website. So if you want to know what's going on with them, check them out at coolblindtech.com. I didn't, re- I didn't realize that there had been a lapse in, in podcasts. Months. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah. So we've had a couple emails so, from listeners asking. And, all right. Can you, can you talk about, like, whether are they just having technical issues or just, like, because I know they were having some staff in... Yeah, it's kind of right now just two of them. It's Nelson and, and James, and both have full-time jobs, so it's just kind of a timing issue, sure. scheduling yeah, issue. Yeah, I can understand that. But there's still lots of contributions oh, going up on their site. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are, there are articles on there. I mean, we're, we just pulled an article from them uh, this week, I think. Yeah. So. So check them out online. That's right. Uh, cool. Blindtech.com. Uh, nice. Well Man. done. Uh, all right. That was that was almost like it was rehearsed or something. Almost. <laughs> yeah. Did, all right, don't. Did, you, yeah, that's right. You won't, you don't come to the rehearsals. Every Thursday night. Had, had we actually rehearsed that, we would have we would have muffed it right off the bat. <laughs> you can, that's how you can tell it wasn't rehearsed. <laughs> oh Lord. All right. Uh, let's get out of here, guys. All right. That's going to about do it for us this week. Thanks everybody for listening, and we will see you all. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778 778- 
847-684-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. Music provided by bensound.com. Whoa, look at that. Master of the one take. <laughs>